Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play, over 30 minutes, with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon. I'm Erin Dewar, and we are not in print. Deborah Oswald announced to her parents that she was going to be a playwright at 12 years old, and she's been sharing stories ever since. Her broad body of work has been seen on screens large and small, watched in darkened theatres across the world, and read by too many people to count. Today, we're here to talk about her play Gary's House, which was first produced in 1996 in a partnership between Melbourne's Playbox Theatre and Sydney's Q Theatre. It was a great success, going on to be shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, included in the New South Wales drama syllabus, and translated for performances in Denmark and Japan. Gary has failed in everything he has attempted, but when he inherits a block of land, he gets an urge to build a nest with his angry, pregnant girlfriend, Sue Ann. A ratbag collection of misfits, loners, drifters and losers are thrown together on this scrubby patch of remote bush, loosely united in a comically desperate project to build not only a house, but a home. Gary's House is a story about people battling with each other, the elements and the world in their quest to turn a dream into reality. Deborah, thank you for joining us to talk about your play, Gary's House, which you have said is an example of why writers should keep notebooks. You said this because one evening in 1980, you actually met Gary and Sue Ann in a pub in Kempsey on the mid-north coast of New South Wales, by which I mean to say that you actually met a couple that inspired Gary and Sue Ann. This man, broken down and down on his luck, had been sent to spy on this young woman in a workers' comp case. And, like Gary and Sue Ann, an unexpected and bizarre relationship developed between them. You were fascinated, making extensive notes later that evening, but you didn't write Gary's house for another 15 years. What brought you back to this couple after all that time, and how did the other elements of the story form around them? Well, Gary and Sue Ann were in my notebook, and I'd even written slabs of dialogue for them. And so I obviously knew that I wanted them to exist as a couple. And around the same time, I was starting to work on stories about about children, abandoned children. And, and that had come from the fact that when I went to primary school, I went to a, a little local primary school where a third of the kids came from homes, kids' homes. They generally weren't orphans. They were generally kids who'd been abandoned or taken away from their families, which when you're a little kid is a very um, powerful notion that the mm. idea that your parents would give you away. So that was spinning around in my head all the time too. Meanwhile, I was involved in the building of a mud brick house in the bush for a long, long time, more than 20 years now. And one day we were up there building and dragging pieces of timber around and I thought, oh, hello. <laughs> you know, I felt, like a, I felt like such an idiot that it had never occurred to me before that if I wanted to tell a story that was about people who didn't have a proper family and a home, that they could physically build one. And the idea that that guy would build a house for that pregnant young woman felt like it, it was already in the ether and I just plucked it. And then other elements came along. So the idea that he would have a sister probably came from my experiences as a child with the brothers and sisters who were in the homes together. So kids who, who didn't have a family anymore, but they had each other and how powerful that could be. And then I added the Dave character because initially because I wanted the audience to have a point of view. 
I wanted to sort of bring someone into that world to be the audience for the Gary and Sue Ann circus. Then he started to grow and become a more important character in the universe of the play. And at first he seems to be the opposite of Gary in every way. But as the play goes on, you realise that he's damaged in his own way and that at the point that he enters the play, he's ripe for change. So for Dave to come back to Australia because his father's died in a house fire and then to meet this strange damaged man who kills himself in front of him, it's pretty bad. And you think that's the worst, that, <laughs> that maybe is the worst thing that could happen to that guy. And it turns out to be the best thing that could happen to that guy. Mm. So that's how he meets Christine really. And yeah. And transforms himself. So once I had that little set of people, it's like a little chamber piece. Once I have those little people on that block of land, away they go. On first glance, they don't really hold a recipe for a great love story or, or no. that kind of story that romantics are looking for. No, um, there's a, a bit in the play where Dave says that when he looks around, he's a great cynic about relationships and, um, and he says when he looks around him at the couples that he sees, it seems to be people who are joining up at their damaged edge. And Christine says, well, maybe that's not a bad thing, that it's ragged edges meeting up. And I think that's true of lots of people and I think it's true in this play of Gary and Sue Ann and Sue Ann and Vince. But I think Dave and Christine are a different category again because I think they initially are attracted to each other in just that way, that night when they almost um, sleep together. I think we see both of them acting out their habitual way of connecting with someone, which is about temporary consolation and it's about quick escape but not revealing too much about yourself. But what happens to both of them in the play is that <clears throat> they both go through a process of healing sort of separately as people. So Christine learns to risk emotional connection to that baby and to Sue Ann and to the whole idea of the house that you could do a good thing that you don't have to kind of steal yourself and take the world on like a like a warrior and Dave learns to risk being vulnerable and to face up to the cost of the that sort of unengaged way that he lives his life that in a specific example that it cost Gary's life, that he'd been more engaged, that man would probably still be alive. So both of them go through their own churning up that heals them a little bit and then they're fit to be together. And there's a fairly standard story, which is the hero must go through all these challenges and find new strengths in his or herself, then to be fit to have the princess slash prince. And Dave and Christine both have to sort themselves out in order to be worthy of each other. So I think their coming together is a much more evolved, mature thing. Dave says this thing, I've got a rule about keeping clear of sad shit. He says that early on when they first are kind of dabbling in the idea. And Christine says, oh, you don't have to worry about wounding my dignity. I don't have any. Is he hanging around because of his guilt to do with Gary? But also isn't she kind of weighed down by guilt, which she does overcome, but mm -hmm. weighed down by a guilt that... You know, because at one point Gary says to her, all I wanted was for my big sister to come and find me. And she says, I was a nine-year-old girl. You know, what did you expect? And she does help him out throughout her life. She says, you know, I bailed you out a number of times, but she couldn't bail him out of this. No. There's a sense in which they both legitimately should feel some guilt. And then another sense in which that was a man in pain that they could have done nothing about. Yes. When you're talking about why Dave hangs around. Oh, yes. He partly hangs around out of guilt. But I think in a bigger sense, why he hangs around from the beginning of the play right to the end is that he is a man who, because of 
I think he's legitimately coming to an age where the life he's living isn't going to hold much longer, as Christine accuses him of. But he's also dealt with the death of his parents in the sense that he neglected them. So he's kind of ripe for change. I think sometimes people can reach a point in their lives where they're opened up and their soft, fleshy bits are, are vulnerable to the air and they can change. And sometimes the moment is there and they take it and sometimes circumstances don't allow for it and they close up again and go back to being what they were. And he's ripe in this play and I think he's kind of drawn in a way that I don't think even he understands to life force in people. And Gary is like this absolute ball of life force, damaged and screwed up and violent and everything that he is. And Sue Ann, in a way, is a yeah. life force. And Christine is too. She is full of energy and, you know, this sort of roiling humanity. And I think Dave is mesmerised by it. He doesn't know what he wants, but that's like this sort of little thing drawing him, this sort of radioactive thing no. across the fence. I mean, people have often talked about this play and it's often studied in terms of it being about the Aussie battler. And I, I don't think that's untrue, but I think maybe I'm pompous, but I, I'd like to make larger claims for it. I think it's a big mythic story. These are people on a big mythic quest, I think. Mm. This furniture of the play may be involved with the Aussie slang of 30 years ago and hammers and nails and being foster children, but that's all just the furniture for a story that's about huge emotional primal things. Do you yeah. think their hero's journey, Christine and Dave, I mean, is actually to stick and to stay yeah, yeah, yeah. and to be still? To stay, yes, and to stay with one person and to... And to believe that something is possible. There's this really great example of how Gary and Sue Ann are with each other, I suppose, that Dave witnesses. And I feel, I feel like he's almost, he plays that role quite yes. often throughout this yes. as well. I just love, it's the first time we see Sue Ann as well, but she comes belting towards Gary, armed with a chainsaw. He assumes she's some wild, random yes. woman running around and Gary's in danger of course, that's not the case, but I just love that that feels to me like a really great sum up of their relationship, of this unexpected meeting of two people. And that she comes at Gary with a chainsaw and he's not scared. He's mostly scared she's going to hurt herself. The sort of mischievous playwright in me just loved the idea that people have just sat down in a the theatre, they've got their bums comfortably in the seats and we usually have a woman running down one of the aisles of the theatre with a live chainsaw. That certainly wakes people up. Hello. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. She, she speaks about her and Gary as mad as cut snakes or that they're deros. There's a real Australiana feel to her. Yes. Yeah. I suppose I like all that stuff. I like that kind of muscular language. And um, yeah. She is like an animal. I think mm. it's sort of it, it, often when, when talking to actors playing that role, we often end up talking in terms of in terms of an animal so that you can't judge her as you would a normal person. You have to judge her as you would an animal that, that's been hit and will flinch and that will find who's going to feed it but will be fickle. Mm, runs on instinct. Yes, and absolutely runs on instinct and, and is a sort of survivor but vulnerable as well. So she's like a stray dog. Which mm. sometimes comes across as almost manipulative. I mean, she's... Um, oh, yeah, she's very manipulative. There's... This emotional volatility, even when she's pressed to eat something other than violet crumbles by Gary. Yes. And she says, I didn't even want this fucking baby. Like it goes, it gets to that point. It's not even about violet crumbles anymore, but she's now whinging about the fact that he tricked her into having a child and now they're trapped and I wish I had an abortion. And he's, 
I mean, this is devastating yeah, stuff for him to hear. Worst thing that a person could say. Oh yeah, they yeah he she absolutely sticks the knife into the worst part of him. Yeah, and then two seconds later is crying in his arms because her back's sore. Or, yeah, you know, handily. Yes. <laughs> Although I think she does have back pain as well. So I think, you know, it's, 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 yeah. it's not a lie. All those things are true. Yes. Yeah. Um, but she does say, you know, Gary loves me to death. Even before we found out I was pregnant, Gary said he was going to look after me no matter what happened with the compo case. Yes. Which I love. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, that's all come from life really. That's just me typing. <laughs> that's me, just me typing down what people have said. <laughs> Well, she, uh, she comments on Dave's reaction to them too, though, and she says, he thought we were a pair of galahs, a pair of desperates, and they laugh about it. So there's actual, I mean, there's a yeah. genuine love and affection f- between them. And the moment where the baby's kicking and... Yeah, the scene where they go up and look at the house at night was always a moment I used to like, because it's important to understand that they're all those things simultaneously. Mm. As many couples are that go at each other, you can never understand what goes on in a relationship from the outside. But you try, I try to give a few different facets of it so that you think, I see, that's why they're mm. going to make it work. Not that I think it would have worked. <laughs> I don't think she would have stayed there with the baby, to be honest. But I guess we yeah. don't know. And maybe you can't answer this, but do you think she would have come back if he hadn't killed himself? I don't know. Mm. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I want to <laughs> I think know. she would. Yeah, I do I too. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Probably not. The other couple, I suppose, that you have is Sue Ann and Vince. And I love that most people terrify Vince. And when he first meets Christine, you say in your stage directions that Christine reduces him to a speechless, quivering stupor. I find it incredible that he ends up with someone like Sue Ann. Yes. But also completely obvious. Yes, I think that's right. And I wouldn't make any claim for their relationship as being... A model for how people should run their relationships. And I don't think that they, as I was saying before about Dave and Christine, I don't think that they are the coming together of two people who've evolved to another level where they can have a proper mature partnership. But, you know, people make the best of what they've got and mm. they'll, I think it'll be okay. Mm. And I certainly wouldn't feel, I always feel that I want to do absolutely the best I can do for, for all those characters. And a baby, I feel a special responsibility for. So I feel Clint's going to be okay because Vince is going to be a good father. And I wouldn't feel right ending this play without taking care of Clint. So I feel I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. He's very, he's very devoted. You know, he's very loyal. He says, I'll look after you and the baby and I mean it. And Sue Ann says, if there's really a God, I reckon he sent you to me and Clint. And I, I think yes. that's really telling. And he knows Vince. who she is. I mean, he talks to Dave later on with a very clear eyed about who Sue Ann is. So he's not yeah. going into this um, unaware of what a little banshee she is. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think he says somewhere too that he, he likes to feel needed. Mm. And in his own life, he's the person who gets looked after, whereas he's this person who's so bereft of options yeah. that Vince is her saviour. Mm-hmm. And then he, he finds his manhood with her yeah. to the extent that he's got one to find. Yeah, he's got someone looking yeah. after him and those little ragged edges meet up again. Yes. I do want to talk about Gary and Christine as another couple, obviously not an, well, an intimate one, but from the point of view of being siblings. Yeah. And as you said before, you often write about the abandoned and the neglected child and how that child then becomes a wounded adult. Gary and Christine's abandonment is founded in um, a childhood spent in and out of different foster homes, not together, which is significant, Mm. I think. So from the outset, 
we sympathise with them because yeah. we can see that these people are slippery and they're desperate and they have this huge desire to find some kind of emotional resting place, I feel. And there's plenty of, I mean, heaps of humour in this play. It's really warm and funny because these characters are so big and adorable in their in their messy way. But we're dealing with people who are foster children. Mm. They've experienced trauma. Um, at some point, their brain has changed, you know, they, they've mm. had um, what's rewired in order to cope. Yes. How do these people connect with each other as well as the world? Gary and Christine have very extreme circumstances mm. in their life, but I, I really wouldn't want the play to be about a sociological analysis of foster children. Right. Because, I mean, that, I mean sorry, that can be an element of the play, mm. but I, I think I wouldn't want that to be a reductive way of looking at it because I think that what happens to them is far more extreme than has happened to me, for example, or most people I know. But often in story you're looking for an extreme premise that speaks about something that's deeper and more universally experienced. So I think the idea that you didn't feel you were loved properly is I think a lot of people feel that, even if they've had what looks like a perfectly comfortable upbringing. And the idea that you've come into the world with with this huge deficit and sense that this huge sort of emotional debt or a, or a prickliness, as Christine has, or whatever version of coping mechanism you've come out with, I think that's a, a, a very common feeling. And the idea that people then flail around in the world looking for surrogate mothers, um, surrogate fathers, surrogate siblings to try and get the nourishment that they didn't get and often make very bad choices as a result. But sometimes, blessedly, they find people who give them what they didn't get and they find a way to grow those bits in themselves. And I think in a way, Christine didn't have a proper mother, but she mothers that baby and she mothers Sue Ann. And I know this this will sound really kind of wet, but I was thinking about it just this morning. I think she, maybe by finding the mother in herself, I think that there's something very healing about that. And the feeling I wanted in the play... Well, the solution I came to after I realised that I'd written a play where I'd killed the main character at an interval, <laughs> which kind of, you know, is not what you're supposed to do, and I thought was a bit of a, a bit of a deal breaker. I thought I'd written an unfixable play and I put the play aside thinking it won't work. That's it. No good. But the solution that I came to when I, when I returned to the play a few months later was that feeling that that she steps into the role, that Gary's been the main character and the main character just leaves. So we, we don't have a main character and there's a hole in the middle of this story which needs a main character. And so she's forced to be a main character against her will. And then later in the play, she leaves yeah. and Dave, the least likely main character on the planet, <laughs> he's one of life's supporting roles, isn't he? He's, 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 one of like, he's chosen to be the supporting actor in life. <laughs> yeah. And even Dave has to become the main character for a couple of scenes. Yeah. And, and that's sort of how I decided to feel about it. There's something so brave about being the main, act, the main character in your life and Gary's brave enough to do that, even if it leads to his doom. So that's how I, that's how I justified the very strange shape of the play to myself. The, the idea that Gary and Christine had a similar energy to them helped that feel like the, the two halves of the play balance. You were talking about the idea of it being a much more mythic story mm. than sometimes people attribute to mm. it. In, and a in story some about ways. class warfare. I, I mean, I don't see myself as different to these people. I mean, I see myself as having been a bit more lucky in life, but I'm not, 
I mean, as you can hear, I'm fairly slaggy in the way I talk <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'm controlling myself now, but I don't see them as, as working class battlers. I, I, I see them as any of us. And I, I think that it says more about the way theatre often is. Theatre is often about university professors and kings and, and that actually these are just regular people. And I think it's, that should not be considered so notable. I think that it might have been something easy for people to to grip onto, but mm. I, I do think that the idea of home, the kind of metaphoric yes. idea of what a home is, is something that runs through the whole piece. And like we were talking about before, the fact that Christine and Dave are actually going on a heroic journey to find a home yes. that they stick to. Um, and obviously Gary trying to build a home as, as a kind of a salvation as well, a man who has been shunted around from place to place to place to place and was so damaged by it that he actually was put into a juvenile detention centre, which he called home for four years. Yes. The fact that Dave looks after other people's homes who are richer than he is for the summer in the Alps, maybe. The fact that Christine and Dave are both travellers, really, and home is where they lay their hat. How do you think the dream of a, a real home is entwined with that metaphoric or more yes. mythical idea of home. Yes. I never wanted the house to be a dirty, great metaphor on the stage. I always wanted it to be a real house. And I always said to people staging the play, do as much real building action as you can, because the house is all sorts of things. It is, it is home, but it's only home if there's a family in it. You know, there's a point in the play where Christine has worked really hard and she's almost finished the house. It's almost finished. Physically, the house is there. She's put huge amount of sweat and money into it. But the minute Sue Ann leaves and takes the baby, that house is nothing. It's almost worse than nothing. It's almost a sort of cruel joke. So the house is only really a place to put a family. And if there's no family, there's, there's no home. And the other thing I think it's worth saying about the house is that it's also about work. It's also about the restorative power of hard work. And so it's always really important to me in productions that we see Gary and Christine physically work hard, that maybe we smell some timber and we see them get sweaty. And I do think that if in doubt, physically build something, do something productive, even if you don't know why, but meaning will come with it and and dignity will come with me, comes with meaningful work. And if it came out as dialogue, if any of those things that we've just been talking about came out as dialogue, it would feel like exposition on stage. And I, I wonder what you decide, or how you decide, rather, what to put on the page and leave mm. on the page and what needs to be on stage. Yes. I prefer drama that's much more set in the present tense. And there's a lot of theatre that's about people talking about their past. And mm. I know Gary does that. But in a way, Gary talks about his past as a ritual, and it's part of it's it's a thing that he does to make people feel sorry for him. It's his so own mythology. Even though he's talking about his past, it's an active little little sort of technique that he has. But I I'm always interested in knowing enough about people's past to kind of believe, okay, this is where you are now. But I'm much more interested in what happens next. I mean, a lot of plays are about the revealing of some secret in the past, and then once it's revealed magically, that makes everything better. <laughs> and I'm always, I'm, I'm very rarely convinced by that, the mm. idea that, that you have some insight into the past and then suddenly you're healed. Well, yeah. no. Yeah. So, okay, being honest about your past is important, but then, then what next? What do you do then? Well, you build a house. <laughs> 
<laughs> you make a baby. <laughs> is one is one possible solution. I'm not suggesting it's for everyone. Life lessons with Deborah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So let's talk about the fact that you kill off your lead character, like you said before. You kill him off um, at the end of Act One. We've got a. We're only halfway through this play. Yes, he's gone. I know. It's called Gary's house. I know. But the point that is controversial is that he reappears as a ghost at the end of the play. I say controversial because it's been criticised, dare I say, for being overtly theatrical in a play that appears naturalistic naturalistic on those levels. Mm. Um, For me, however, I feel like this ending allowed for Gary and Christine to finally haul off these lifelong shackles that they've been carrying around. Um, in this moment of Gary appearing as the ghost, he mimics Christine in a a scene earlier, Act 2, Scene 4, where she's been cradling little Clint. He does it again now, cradling Clint into his neck and drinking in his feel and smell. The baby settles into silence within seconds. Gary and Christine exchange a smile. There's silence. There's an inner peace. There's a healing that happens and there's a recognition of childhood in the new child and also of their childhood together or, as the case may be, not together. Mm -hmm. These are things they've been searching for their whole life. You give them this extraordinary experience of being able to witness it in each other though and sharing this powerful breakfall that happens for both of them. When I first realised I'd killed him at interval, as I said before, I actually put the play aside and thought that it it wouldn't be a play. Mm. Because I couldn't think of a way not to kill him and have the stakes be high enough for the rest of the story. So, and it was only when I came back and decided to make Christine become the main character that I found a way to finish it. But once that idea was there, the idea that Gary would appear at the end was always part of it. It wasn't an added on, tacked on idea. And I know that it is, from a style point of view, peculiar because it's a play where there's been no convention set up that anything like that will happen. So it probably breaks all kinds of rules. But I'm not a stylist and I really don't care <laughs> about that. That To me, the truth of the end, one part of the truth is that that is his house. He did succeed. The house is built. His child has a home. A family will live in that house. Part of his own family has been healed. Unfortunately, he's not included. And all of that is there in that moment because the idea that all those beautiful things have been created but he's dead and we'll never really get to have it. That's still there in the moment as well. So the, these two incredibly powerful, is it an idea? These two powerful emotional truths are sitting there simultaneously in the image of that dead man holding his baby. Mm. Just felt right to me in a way that I don't know that I can argue for logically. And I think it's also about what plays can do. The idea that you've been on this emotional journey and that I felt I wanted to see him hold his baby. And I thought the audience would. And the idea that that is a theatrical moment, even though people might come out of it and say, but symbolically it's his house and we know that it's built. There's something about the emotional experience of sitting in a theatre and seeing it and sitting with the idea, sitting with the image that I would never be argued out of. And I suppose I also think the play isn't as naturalistic as people think it is either. <laughs> I think I think there's a kind of default setting that people go to naturalism all the time if something looks like it probably is naturalism. I think the whole thing is completely over the top <laughs> and I quite like it if it's performed quite big. Yeah. Um, so naturalism, smaturalism, I, you know. Yeah, and what does that mean anyway when yeah. you try and define it? Yes. And surprise 
I love surprise. So rarely in the theatre am I surprised. <laughs> so the beginning of this play, I surprised people by attacking them with a chainsaw. And at the end, I surprised them by giving them a ghost which doesn't fit with any of the theatrical rules they thought they were had signed up for. But if it's a surprise where you initially go, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but it, it sits right emotionally, then that's the best kind. And hopefully people think about him. I mean, why not see him? When you've lost somebody, you see them all the time and imagine them. You know, my father died a few years ago and when anything happens in my life or my children's lives that I know he would particularly enjoy or find funny or be proud about, I imagine telling him and I imagine how he would react. Mm. So this is like that. This is Mm. like Christine saying, Gary, look what I did and here's your baby and she's imagining it. Mm. I I don't believe in ghosts or the supernatural so in – in my mind, it's her imagining him or the audience imagining him or something. Yeah. But people can do whatever version of that works. But we, I think we all conjure up people who we've lost in order to tell them something that we want them to know. You said in an interview with Richard Feidler that if you hear songs yeah. that were played in the original production in the supermarket, it makes yeah. you cry. Because the music that you use in usually the first production of something gets in in, you know, in the way you know how music yeah. has incredible emotional associations. So when I hear tracks that were used in the show, um, there's a particular Bad Loves track that will always set me off. You know, if I'm in the supermarket and I hear it, I might think about Gary and then there I am crying in the pastor aisle. It's pretty sad, isn't it? No. I all these people, I, I'm responsible for them. Yeah, and children. I, and I, some of them I was able to fix and some of them I couldn't fix. Mm-mm. Anyway. But he is fixed, I think, isn't that? All right, yes, this, yes, this yes, moment. yes. No, that's right. That's that's maybe that's just me. I need to feel. <laughs> I need to feel. I I didn't. And so the poor actor playing him gets to sit around in the dressing room for all of the second act. <laughs> they can't go home. They have to come out. That's right. <laughs> Deborah, thanks so much oh, for great. being here and speaking with us. Thank you. I'm, no, I really, I'm very grateful because it is it is very nice to kind of think about all these things again because you you know there's so many years of my life gone into them and yeah. And then they kind of, you know, they don't sink with that trace, but you don't think about them again. And so it's kind of, yeah, very nice. It's been great to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Not In Print. You can find out more about Currency Press and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or would like to make a suggestion for future episodes, please let us know via Facebook or Twitter. This episode was recorded in Sydney on the 23rd of February 2013. It was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of Rachel Corbett.